0: Hello and welcome to the first Inn and Guard Executives podcast for 2022. I'm Meryl April, a partner in CM Murray, employment and partnership specialists based in London. And I'm joined today by Jessica Riggin, employment attorney in Rukin, Highland and Riggin, who operate in San Francisco and the Bay Area and Oakland. And also by Regan O'Driscoll of CC Solicitors. Employment and Partnership Specialists in Dublin. Welcome Regan and Jessica, and thank you, particularly Jessica, as a guest to Guard Executives for joining us today. As advisors to senior execs and employers, I think one thing we certainly value is clarity in the law so that we can bring about success for our clients. And one emerging area, in the UK at least, where the law is very unclear at present, is the rights and obligations of menopausal people. I use that phrase to mean in this context, certainly women, but also transgender people who retain the biological features of women and therefore can suffer menopausal symptoms and, of course, those who employ them. And in this podcast, we're going to look at three areas. The first is whether the law is clear in the relevant jurisdiction, UK, State of California or Ireland. Secondly, whether or not you personally think the menopause should be made a protected characteristic separate from the ones we have already, and whether you think that will happen in your jurisdiction. And thirdly, what advice you would give currently to senior execs, either suffering themselves from debilitating menopausal symptoms or managing those presenting with them in the workplace and perhaps taking lots of time off, failing to perform at their previous level, or even threatening to resign. It would, in due course, be great to get input from other jurisdictions represented by Inningard after we've kicked off the conversation today. And in the UK, for sure, the menopause is no longer a personal issue, but a workplace issue that senior executives need to be aware of and indeed informed about. So I thought I would kick off talking about the UK position. Firstly, there have been a few cases, but only a few, and nearly all of them at first instance under the current discrimination law, age, sex, and disability. Only two appeal cases, and the most recent one, Rooney, in the EAT, uh, is a case on a preliminary issue, and the issues to be determined, including whether or not menopause is a disability, have been remitted back to the tribunal. So there's no precedent yet. And claimants are basically trying to shoehorn their facts and situations into existing discrimination law. And there are therefore gaps to people's entitlement and protection. Secondly, there was in the autumn a private member's bill in Parliament. And at the second reading in October 2021, the government took the opportunity to make an announcement about UK government plans around the workplace and women's health strategy. And that includes making the menopause a women's health strategy priority and establishing a new menopause task force. It remains to be seen how that will go. Thirdly, the Parliamentary Women and Equalities Committee launched an inquiry last summer, July 21, uh, and is taking evidence from specialist advisors in this area into the workplace issues surrounding the menopause. There is some evidence some survey evidence that suggests that already a million women have left the workplace owing to menopausal symptoms and that committee is therefore asking whether enough is being done to prevent women from leaving or suffering other adverse consequences as a result of their symptoms and they are looking in particular at whether further legislation is required Fourthly, in November last year, the findings of an independent report were published entitled Menopause and Employment, which made recommendations for government, employers, and society, emphasising, in the case of employers, the need for open conversations in the workplace to break down the taboo, the importance of training line managers and other senior execs, the need for workplace adjustments, not just consideration of flexible working the value of support groups and specialist support, including occupational health, review of sick policies and performance policies and procedures um, and returner programmes to include and highlight post-menopausal opportunities as well as post-maternity. Fifth and finally, current resources are growing to assist executives and employers alike. And that now includes ACAS guidance called menopause at work and even the unions which is something that may be of interest to Regan in particular Unison have produced a resource entitled the menopause is a workplace issue guidance and model policy so that's where we are in the UK but Regan what's happening in Ireland have there been some cases and what are you seeing there?
1: Very similar kind of situation to your own, Meryl. Um, I suppose not unusually given the the closeness of the jurisdictions, but um, it all uh, seemed to kick off in the middle of last year, similarly. um, Largely in in public consciousness only, in that the the national radio station gave about a week on one particular radio show called Liveline to discussion of the topic. And so through that, it became very public and then got mentioned at parliamentary level. As I recall, a member of the Green Party gave a speech in which he mentioned that something like 10 percent of women in the relevant age group had left their employment as a result of the menopause. I'm not sure where that statistic comes from, but it's quite alarming. And then there is sort of there have been some vague promises by including by our our, uh, Taoiseach, the prime minister, that um, the government will be supportive of a national uh, awareness campaign and the Department of Health has identified as a priority. Uh, the menopause to be looked at by the, the Women's Health Task Force, which was put in place in 2019 for the general uh, purpose of, of uh, improving the experience and outcomes for women through healthcare. So it's it's being looked at. But since then, it, it seems to have gone quite quiet again, much like, as you mentioned, in the UK, there has been some union movement, but only the, the financial services union that I'm aware of, certainly publicly which begs the question of why some other unions haven't really gotten into it and maybe maybe they're more male dominated. That, that could be the reason or maybe just for some reason hasn't really connected with them as much. Um, the Financial Services Union came out with a very interesting uh, survey that they had done of, of I think how many 6,000 people responded to it, which indicated that 97.5% of workplaces don't have a workplace policy or certainly if the respondents workplaces don't have workplace policy in relation to menopause which is not really surprising given that it's only recently become something that's so topical but a lot of them want it. 15% feel comfortable talking about menopause in work again probably not surprising given how under the radar um, and, and slightly taboo the topic has been. 38% interestingly say menopause is treated as a joke in their workplace uh, which is really actually appalling if you think about it, but not again, not surprising. Um, and only 17% say that menopause is not treated negatively in the workplace, and that that's really a very um, depressing statistic. in In terms of case law, there've only been two cases that I've ident- identified. As as uh, I suppose, just to give by way of background, the way that equality issues are dealt with in Ireland is through um, it's now through the Workplace Relations Commission. We have specific uh, legislation that deals with equality, employment equality acts, uh, in which there are nine prohibited grounds of discrimination, three of them potentially applying here. Uh, The Workplace Relations Commission was put in place several years ago, and prior to that, there was the Equality Tribunal. And in fact, one of the two cases that I found uh, was dealt with by the Equality Tribunal, then appealed to the Labour Court. And in that particular case, it was a case against the health services executive um, by an employee who said they applied. For a post internally and didn't get it, which she said it was because of her age. And, and she identified various issues to indicate that, but one of which was that three months before she applied for the job and, and got turned down, one of the subsequent members of the interview board asked her if she was suffering from menopause, which she said, obviously, you know, there was a prejudicial, that was prejudicial to her. And in fact, the member of the board admitted it uh, at the hearing uh, into the matter uh, that they had answered the question, but said it was because they were concerned about their duty of care towards her. So, any of the labour court didn't decide, they? They decided yes, it was it was admitted, but they didn't think it was really an indication of discrimination one way or the other. Uh, I suppose I should point out that all three members of the labour court panel were men. Whether whether women would or women are certainly of a you know in the age to be aware of menopause would have come to the same conclusion. I I, I can't say. Um, but they certainly didn't think it indicated something. I would, I would have thought it does. Um, this was in two thousand and four that it happened, and the decision was to, of the Labour Court was two thousand and eight. I, I suspect maybe a decision now might be a little more nuanced. Whether it be different is another question. And then the second case I found in relation to it is undecided at the moment. There was a, a there was a, an initial hearing into whether the, the claimant could proceed with her proceedings, and where she was, she might have been out of time. But they decided she was out. She was, in, was just within time. Or the disability this this time coming under disability discrimination case. She also she she brought it under gender and disability, but they decided the gender one was out of time because it it basically was before six months. But you have to bring your proceedings within six months, and the gender aspect of it was clearly out of time. Whereas she said the her termination, which was on disability or disability grounds or on health grounds, uh, the disability part um, was because of her menopause, or she said it was imputed to her. Um, And they decided that was just within time. So we don't know yet what will happen with that case. But what I think is interesting about those two cases is that all three different types of of discrimination come up. Uh, In one of them, you get age and the other two, gender and disability. And of course, I think, as we'll be talking about, that indicates the sort of issue with menopause is that it just sort of sits in a strange place in the middle of, of the various grounds of discrimination. And it doesn't have a one identified characteristic that sort of puts it in one specific ground.
0: Indeed. Thank you. That, that's really interesting. And if I can come to you next, Jessica, just to outline what the situation is in California.
2: Absolutely. And it's it's fascinating to hear uh what the, the case law and progression has been in these other jurisdictions. I think um if possible, there's even been uh less development of, of the case law in California. Um there's been really one primary case in in California, and and frankly, not even that recently. It was from about ten years ago in federal court um, in California. There simply hasn't been much case law or litigation over this issue, and so it, it will be interesting to see uh, now that that menopause has come more into the public consciousness. Um, you know, in in the UK and and overseas, will that you know, affect some of the conversations in the U.S. Um, you know, I'm certainly interested to see that because I don't think that that change has happened um, quite as of yet. But for for the moment, um, as I mentioned, the the one primary case that's really addressed the issue head on is this California federal court case from 2012. The name is Sipol versus Crossmark. Um, the primary holding was that menopause is not a disability per se under California law. Um, The the reasoning of the court there followed the holdings of some other uh, cases, out of state cases. Um, The idea being that menopause is a natural progression over time. The court reasoned that it's similar to losing your sense of vision or hearing and an inevitable part of the human condition. Um, it's not unique to any one individual. Um, that said, I think the the court left a very important door open. And so I, I don't consider the issue settled. I think this case may be an example of, um, perhaps somewhat bad facts or bad pleadings, making um, at least unsettled case law. Um, And so I'll I'll give just a bit of background on on what the legal standard is in in California. Um, This case was addressing the issue of uh, reasonable accommodations. Um, And so in this case, um, there was a female employee going through menopause who felt that she was not able to uh, wear the uniform of her job. and so she wanted to wear a different um, a, a uniform with shorter sleeves um, and I believe shorts instead of pants. Um, and so she wanted that accommodation. Frankly, that seems like a very minor and reasonable accommodation to me, but that's that's beside the point why the employer couldn't accommodate that. So this this is a case about whether or not, um, you know, menopause was a disability in the context of a reasonable accommodations case. I think, as Reagan mentioned, you know, there's all sorts of other interesting issues that have the potential to come up in the context of discrimination cases, um, which frankly just haven't been addressed in California in terms of the intersection with age and sex. Um, and so, you know, I think this area really is ripe for litigation and legal analysis. But getting back to the the case at hand and the reasonable accommodations issue, um, under California law, the the relevant statute is the Fair Employment and Housing Act. The physical disability is protected if it satisfies two elements. And so first, the condition must affect a at least one body system so neurological musculoskeletal um, respiratory cardiovascular reproductive digestive and in this case the court found that the plaintiff simply hadn't presented evidence of that factor but i do think that should be frankly pretty easy to satisfy if you had a reasonable physician um, and, and that supporting evidence. Um, second, uh, to be protected under the Fair Employment and Housing Act or FEHA, the condition must limit a major life activity. And so those, those are defined as physical, mental, and social activities and working. So, caring for yourself, performing mental tasks um, and manual tasks, seeing, hearing, eating, sleeping, walking, standing, lifting, bending, speaking, thinking, communicating, all all sorts of things, the things that you think about doing every single day in your life. And the court found that uh, she didn't provide any evidence of that second factor either. The only argument that she made was, I can't wear this particular uniform, not that I'm limited in any of my major life tasks. But again, I think in many situations, it would be quite easy to provide evidence of a limitation of a major life activity. So the court really does leave open the potential for proving that menopause is a disability under the FIHA. And there was a later case, not in California, but actually out of Alabama, that denied an employer's summary judgment uh, motion on this issue. So while that case is not ideal, I would say, from the plaintiff's perspective or someone trying to prove that menopause is a disability, I think there just simply hasn't been enough litigation or analysis of this issue to really know where the law stands. And I I think it's, it's wide open ground for someone who, um really is experiencing serious physical effects as a result of, of menopause. Um, and I think there could be potentially good claims out there. So it, it's frankly just quite unsettled.
0: That's really interesting. It's it's very there are lots of analogies with the way that the law is developing in the UK and how what you have to establish under disability discrimination and the impact on normal day-to-day activities. But, I think what you said there that and perhaps what the court is saying is it comes to the heart of the matter, doesn't it? That on the one hand, it could be seen as a normal transition and not an impairment. And it seems somewhat artificial to try and and fit it into some sort of impairment or disability. But on the other hand, at the moment, that's the only way that there is going to be protection. And certainly um, there have been cases such as our Donachi case, which showed that that the typical menopausal symptoms certainly had a more than trivial impact on the individual's ability to carry out normal day-to-day activities and and was substantial. So this is the issue that the law has to grapple with. And I'd like to move on, starting with um, your view, Regan, as to whether you personally think that menopause discrimination should exist separately, and secondly, whether you think it's likely that in due course, Ireland will make the menopause a protected characteristic.
1: I think um, I think it's, an, it's
0: obviously an interesting question, but I think it
1: probably would be great to have it in terms of making people more aware of it and their obligations towards it. Because as it stands, uh, I think there probably is a lot of discrimination of some form going on in respect of menopause. And because it doesn't fall into any particular box, it's not really being you know, people are not being trained in relation to. So when you you might get periodic training that's provided to employees, um, you know, when they start at work and then annually or when it, whenever some sort of crisis arises in the workplace, um, uh, dignity at work training or equality training might be provided. And it's not something that, that gets flagged at that point because it's not really, t- it hasn't really been talked about up until recently. And women are, have felt disinclined to talk about it or embarrassed to talk about it. Maybe if, if there was a specific ground that would show, that would have to change, obviously, but from a legal perspective, I mean that's one thing that's sort of a you know that's a me, me thinking I'd be interested to see what would happen if there was a specific ground from a sort of a yeah I, I'm thinking about it with amusement if really, to see what would happen but from a legal perspective, I'm not sure that it is required really certainly in in this jurisdiction um disability discrimination there's a whole question over and I know in the UK there's been a discussion about whether it is appropriate where it's it's something I mean you'll you'll be talking about this Meryl but um whether it's appropriate where a menopause is not um you know it it doesn't happen to you because of an accident uh, it's not an illness it's just part of your natural life cycle so it's this is something uneasy about disability being a being one of the grounds that can apply but symptoms can be quite severe and uh depending on the person and they could fall within that, that uh, definition. In Ireland, the legal definition of disability is actually extremely broad. So even disabilities that are, are temporary can come within the protection of the legislation. The classic case that I think I, I tend to tell people about is, is that whiplash on one occasion was was uh, sufficient uh, to establish a disability that uh, somebody couldn't be discriminated against or that reasonable accommodation has, had to be provided for. And And I'm not saying that I think that all cases of discrimination against somebody who has menopause would fall within it, but I think if you look at it, it's it's something. It's it's like uh, it, it, the, I was thinking about this earlier today. When somebody is discriminated against on the grounds of their pregnancy or because they're because of having had a child, it's it's very automatic here certainly that if you're if you're suing for it, you you tick the boxes for gender and family status. The two the two are it's going to be without question. You'd be ticking both because both apply. And in this case, I, I think it's likely that if, if I had a client. And I was having to issue proceedings on her behalf uh, in relation to discrimination where, where menopause would come into the equation. Um, I would be taking uh, gender. Not, I would probably be taking age, although not necessarily because some people experience um, menopause at a very early age. Although I might still take it anyway, because age discrimination a claim can be based on a perception, whether it's correct or not. So if somebody felt that they were being they were being discriminated against on an age ground, arising from the menopause, I think it certainly would be stateable that you would take that. And then potentially, depending on the circumstances, depending on what kind of symptoms they're having, or it, depending on if it's a case of reasonable accommodation where they need their employer to provide them with a cooler place to work or different, different uniforms, such as the case that Jessica was talking about there, or make sure that, uh, you know, water is freely available for people who are, who are requiring it. That kind of thing. Uh, it, then disability would be a box I would tick there. So I think they could all apply and I'd, I'd see no problem with ticking all of them. And literally in our claim forms, it is a box that you tick. Um, I, I would have no problem with uh, issuing proceedings under all of those grounds and then seeing where it would take me. I, I think the first few cases are going to be interesting. I mean, like I said, there's the one waiting in the wings. From what I read about it, it's a little unclear about what the, the basis for the claim is. But um, that's kind of not unusual. And when they're dealing with the statute point, I, all of this is to be teased out. I don't think that we necessarily need it in order to help our clients, is the way I put it. Do I think it's likely, then your second question, that the um, Irish legislature will actually amend our equality legislation to include menopause? No, is the short answer. Certainly not in the short term. Uh, I I just don't see it. I think they probably take the view, look, it's, it's, it's there already. You know, you you can you can already do it. Um in the long term, who knows? I mean, maybe if there's such a sufficient body of jurisprudence that it becomes apparent it needs to
2: be there, who knows? Jessica, what's your view? I really agree with with all of the points that Regan made. I, I don't think it's necessary because as as I was saying earlier, with respect to the the framework of the one case we do have, I I think it fits. Neatly in the boxes that that we have, I, I think it should already be protected. And so i I don't think it should be necessary, which is sort of a separate question, I think, perhaps, from would it be potentially helpful in you know allowing individuals to to assert their rights and making employers aware of their obligations to their workers? and i think i think that's a complicated question you know i i you know is there some risk that it creates stigma or or the like you know that's something i potentially worry about but i i think the the benefits would likely outweigh the risk i mean i think probably the closest analogy that we have is you know the very robust framework of laws that we have to protect you know Individuals in the event of pregnancy, you know, we have um, pregnancy uh, PDL, which is um, pregnancy disability leave, the California Family Rights Act. We have a whole framework of laws that provide what happens. And uh, in the event of, of pregnancy, um, you know, pregnancy is explicitly labeled as a disability and so it's very clear what happens when you have if if you as a person are pregnant or if you an employer have a worker who is pregnant and so i think there is benefit to certainty and so i think that that is probably what i view as the the biggest benefit of explicitly adding it to the framework of protections that we already have though I, I I don't technically think it should be necessary for the vast majority of cases. I think, though, the downside is where that if you don't, where that leaves you is figuring things out on a case-by-case basis what any one individual is entitled to, whereas maybe like in the case of pregnancy, you know, the legislature would want to decide in the event of menopause, you know, there are, you know, these leave entitlements or these obligations of an employer. And so that's sort of a whole separate policy consideration. And, and there may be some pushback on that, though California is very employee protective. Um, and so that's, that's a more complex conversation than I think we have time for today. But I think my short answer is I don't think it should be required for protections, but there may be some benefits to everyone um, in the certainty that would be gained from explicitly including it as a protected characteristic.
0: I I agree with that with much of what you said. And and we started by saying that the reason we're talking about this is that it is an area that's unclear and that's never really good for clients. It it promotes litigation. And I guess that's good for lawyers, but not particularly for clients. But I I think the reason the UK um, is gaining some traction on this is that you've got obviously fact-specific cases at first instance and in some they're able to fit their situation into the law and and there's a finding that they are disabled and therefore they have certain rights including in some circumstances the right to reasonable adjustments or accommodation Uh, but then there are other cases where you look at the facts and and it's gone the other way and you can't really quite see why so I think probably more data and, and further consultation is needed Although my my personal view, uh, I hope I'm open minded, but my personal view at the moment is that there probably isn't need for legislation and that the preferred approach would be for the UK task force that I mentioned at the beginning to work with unions and government and employers to promote certainly menopause policies. That was quite a shocking statistic that Regan mentioned that there are so few policies and for employers to undertake widespread and sensitive training. One thing that really struck me when I was listening to some of the evidence to the um, Women Inequalities Commission is that one of the men speaking was saying he had not been aware that there were so many physical and psychological and mental effects of menopause, certainly for some women, and he just really thought it was about sweats or hot flushes. And apparently there are something like 30 potential um, symptoms of menopause so I think training is very important and upskilling and one would hope as I think we've all touched on that in that situation employers would then voluntarily make reasonable accommodations or adjustments in consultation with the people affected rather than needing to be legislation and we've mentioned some of the things which seem quite small as, as you said Jessica in terms of uniform adjustments or ventilation access to water and um, storage facilities uh, access to EAP mental health and so on but what I what I do think is if legislation is forthcoming the key evidential threshold will be the definition of menopause and again you've touched on it Jessica it's nowhere near as easy as and, and Regan as well as defining pregnancy And I think that's going to be a really big challenge and might actually just result in more litigation and less clarity. So, um, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in the UK. We're probably the jurisdiction most likely to move to legislation, but I don't think that's at all guaranteed. And uh, I think there's a lot more consultation and data required before we would get to that stage. But there are real real issues, I think, in terms of the threshold, in terms of the evidence that's required to show that you fall within that category. And uh, I also think that there would need to be uh, the sort of legislation that doesn't require comparators. It would need to be the type of discrimination legislation that just uh, provides protection where there's unfavourable treatment rather than less favourable treatment. Uh, And that would need to be a feature of any law dealing with this new protective characteristic. But coming to our final question, if I may, and starting with you, Jessica, what what advice would you give currently to senior execs, either suffering from menopausal symptoms or managing menopausal people uh, in the workplace today?
2: Yes. So, (laughs) My my first piece of advice is, is a bit like a, a barber telling you you need a haircut, but it, might, it, it really is talk to an attorney to figure out the best path forward. Um, because, you know, sometimes I have executives calling me for all sorts of issues, obviously not just menopausal related issues, but, you know, I I could have been of much more assistance had I gotten involved Um earlier in the issue to, to manage it in the workplace. And so I think as soon as you start to sense that something might be going wrong, um, it's helpful to engage with someone. And they may tell you, there's nothing I can do right now. Let's check back in at, at this stage or this stage. But I think the sooner you start to engage with someone, the better, because um oftentimes, you know, they can help you manage communications behind the scenes and and help things from really going off the rails. And if it turns out to ultimately end up needing litigation, you will end up being in the best possible position if you've engaged someone early on to manage your communications and, and that dialogue with your employer. So... Um, it, it it really is. I think in executive's best interest to to talk to someone as as early on as possible in the process, and then because each you know each situation is just so different um, in terms of maybe a maybe a reasonable accommodation would help here. Maybe there's discrimination. Let's let's figure out if we can work out some solution here, or this is untenable and you know, we need to negotiate a package. And it really does take individualized advice to figure out um, the best path forward given given the circumstances. Um, and oftentimes there is, at least in California, and I would, I would assume the same is true in other jurisdictions, particularly if, for example, you're asking for reasonable accommodation, there's certain trigger language that you'll want to include on your requests. And an attorney can help you ensure that you're including the proper language so that, again, if it does turn into litigation down the road, you've made sure to to protect yourself um, as, as best possible possible if the employer doesn't you know engage in good faith in that process or it doesn't end up working out. So I think that that's really my my primary piece of advice.
0: Absolutely, thank you. And from my perspective, I think the most important thing would be to say there may well already be actionable discrimination and therefore Individuals should be aware of their rights, for example, to ask for a risk assessment, if that would be valuable to them. And people dealing with this type of situation should be aware that the most common defense used by the employer is that they had no knowledge of the person's potential or actual disability. Knowledge can be actual or constructive, but it clearly is good advice to make sure that the employer cannot deploy that defense and that you have put them on notice uh, that You are suffering, or that the person in your team is suffering these symptoms and may well have protection under current disability legislation. Equally, if a manager is considering a grievance or a disciplinary, they need to bear in mind those potential risks and adapt processes accordingly if they have that relevant knowledge. Secondly, I think they need to inform themselves. Uh, Individuals could do worse than start a workplace support group, share knowledge and information. There's always power in numbers. And there are some good case studies around, for example, with Yorkshire Water, where a support group's been formed and they meet every six weeks in work time. And that sounds like a very positive development. Thirdly, seek medical backup from GP and occupational health because evidence is going to be key. And also seek help from HR. I don't know across the board how helpful HR departments are but what's clear is that the CIPD has produced guidance and it's incumbent on HR I think to be playing an active role in these issues so I would say those would be my key points. Regan could you just sum up for us your advice?
1: Yeah I mean I funny enough I was going to say almost exactly the same thing as Jessica that uh, people should take advice and as much as that seems self-serving um, but I, I would maintain that because each situation is going to be different and depend on its own circumstances. So the generalised things that we're saying today, you know, we can be more specific in our in, in our advice if somebody comes to us. And it's it's doubly important because of the second point, which which echoes um, something you said, Meryl, um, about you know seeking support from the people around you. We I mean, right now, anyone um, suffering from discrimination on grounds of their menopause, will probably feel particularly isolated because. This isn't something that's been talked about very much, and they might know very much about it themselves. Um, something that came up: uh, there's a, a menopause hub a website here that was quite vocal after you know everything became more public last summer. They they got some findings from research that they had conducted in 2020 that half of women don't feel comfortable even talking to their GP, or their family doctor, you know, their primary medical practitioner about menopause, I mean, that's astonishing and it's, it's terribly, it's terribly sad. It means that somebody going through this, can it doesn't feel like they can talk to someone who would, they, they would talk to you about all their other medical problems and therefore how comfortable are they going to feel talking to colleagues about it, talking to their employer about it. And that comfort is going to grow over time the more that it's talked about. So it is really important, I 100% agree with you, uh, to create these circles of trust, you know, um, so that that is a, another point I wanted to make. And, and, and following on from that, from what I just said, I think that women are going to come to us probably being quite concerned that if they raise it with their employer and say, look, I'm going through the menopause and I'm having some symptoms that I'm finding really difficult and I need you to help me with it or whatever it is that they, they say um, that they're going to be sidelined or written off by their employer on that basis. Um, it, there would be precedent for that in terms of how women are treated in some circumstances where they say they're going to have a baby. Um, and, and like I, one of the statistics earlier about the fact that I think it was 37% when menopause is mentioned in the workplace, it's as a joke. So that's something we'll need to talk through with our clients. I don't know that it's something I can you know necessarily give blanket advice on today, um, but if 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 women don't, you know, raise it with their employers, then they won't be affording the, themselves the, you know, the, wrapping themselves up in the the blanket of of protection that is given to them by the the um, you know employment legislation, the employment equality acts here. So there's a balancing of what women are going to be comfortable with. It's going to change over time. There's no question in my mind. At the moment. It's going to be difficult advice I think that we're giving to women and on the one hand it's straightforward yes you you know you, there's probably discrimination already happening and we can help you with that and there are claims. the other hand we're going to have to I suppose balance their uh, emotional needs bearing in mind that they're going to have difficulty talking about this in the workplace. And, and I think you know it's all doable. I just think it comes back to the point that in this specific case, take advice and, and, um, and work through your particular circumstances.
0: Thank you very much, and thank you both for your time and for your contributions. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. I hope that we, as lawyers and in Inengard and Inengardic execs can at least play our part in having, as you say, Regan, that conversation and uh, carrying on with uh, taking down the taboo and assisting our clients. So, also, it'd be good to hear from other members of Inengard as the law and policy develops in each of our countries. So. Let's hope we can meet again and continue the conversation. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you.